From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Human-caused climate change is already inflicting damage to ecosystems, with a surge in droughts, floods, and heat waves, not to mention the threat to people's health. With climate change, the temperature will continue to increase, and without adaptation, there would simply be higher mortality and morbidity. And that's a basic fact. We'll break down the new assessment from scientists, including issues of equity and social justice. Then, a local entrepreneur with a vision to support Black-owned businesses in Denver. And later, what happens when you plan for a train that never arrives. That was supposed to be transit-oriented development. Um, supposed to be the site of all of these, you know, commuters that wouldn't have to have cars, wouldn't have to drive. So it's really just an example of a development that creates more congestion. The failure and possible future for transit on the Front Range. Legacy Circle members include Colorado Public Radio in their estate plans. We want to perpetuate what Colorado Public Radio is doing. And I like to be able to know that I had a part in that. We're hoping that something we leave continues on in a positive way. I think that's part of building an understanding and appreciation that will help perpetuate for future generations. Information at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Climate change is hurting the planet faster than nature or humans can adapt, and humanity has a small and rapidly shrinking window to avoid a deadlier, more destructive climate future. That's the conclusion of a new report from scientists with the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Here to talk about the new report and what the findings mean for Colorado is CPR's climate and environment editor, Joe Wirtz. Hey, Joe. Hey, how are you? Well, the the new report from the UN is pretty dire. Uh, what does it say about how climate change is already hurting ecosystems and humans? Yeah, it it is pretty dire. Uh, yeah. Scientists say warming, you know, is already you know appending the lives of billions of people around the planet. That's billions with a B. Um, so climate change right now is already damaging ecosystems. And this damage is, you know, well beyond the normal ebb and flow of, of, of climate and nature. Uh, the warming, scientists say, is intensifying so quickly and so rapidly that it could soon threaten the ability of nature and humans to adapt unless, you know, greenhouse gas emissions are, are quickly reduced. Now, a big focus of this new UN report is explaining the unequal effects of climate change. That's right. Mm-hmm. What do scientists say? Yeah. So this report has a lot more focus on inequality and it, and it brings in a lot more social and economic science to give context to some of the climate research. Adding these dimensions and paints a much clearer picture of, of the human cost of inaction here. Um, I talked to Dr. Linda Mearns. She's a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. She was also a review editor on the report's North American chapter. This effect is very much a, a function of age, gender, location, and socioeconomic status. And without adaptation, there would simply be higher mortality and morbidity. She says many groups of people who are the most vulnerable to the worst effects of this warming also have the fewest resources to, to adapt. Now, now, this word adapt and adaptation is a big theme in this report. And it's a term I've never heard before, transformational adaptation. What exactly is that? That term was new to me, too. So I asked, uh, asked Dr. Mearns to describe it. It's usually adaptation is viewed as being about 
climate proofing existing structures, systems, and so forth. Transformative adaptation is really, it's about deliberately and fundamentally changing systems to achieve a more just and equitable adaptation outcomes. So one example she gives is, you know, take climate change and sea level rise. If incremental adaptation is deciding maybe you need to build a taller seawall to protect a neighborhood, she says transformational adaptation might be restructuring the neighborhood so the most vulnerable people don't face the greatest danger. I see. Now, now what does the report say about how this warming is affecting Colorado right now and how could it get worse? So this report and all IPCC reports are kind of a synthesis of other climate research. And that research shows that, you know, Colorado is already feeling a lot of these effects. Wildfires are expected to increase and intensify. That means longer fire seasons and increased firefighting costs. Smoke from these fires is linked to respiratory health problems, a spike in hospital admissions. And these problems are expected to grow even more in elderly, low-income, you know, black Native American communities. Snowpack is declining. That reduces runoff. That recharges water supplies. You know, droughts are increasing and lasting longer. Uh, Water supplies are being degraded by the warming. And also, all this warming is intensifying, you know, fights over this existing water. And climate change is also threatening food production and farming. You know, all these, they're vulnerable to all those same water problems. But the warming itself is hurting crop yields and crop quality, you know, and it's uh, changing the dynamics and expected to worsen the effects of diseases that, that affect things like livestock. So if humans act rapidly, can we avoid the harmful effects of this warming? No, uh, no, not, unfortunately, no. Scientists are confident that some of the damage is irreversible. You know, it's like climate disaster cake that is already partially baked. Uh, mm. We're experiencing some of the effects already. But what scientists say is that rapid action to reduce warming, uh, to limit the warming to below a 1.5 degree Celsius increase from those pre-industrial levels could reduce the chances of much more catastrophic and deadly problems. Okay, we need to keep the warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. Where are we now? We are already at about 1.1 degrees. So we are half a degree away from passing that limit. That's why scientists say this. Uh, we have a really small window and it's rapidly uh, shrinking and the time uh, is limited to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But, but are, there, are there things that can still be done to slow this warming, even though, as you say, some of the climate disaster cake is already baked? Can we maybe pull it out of the oven? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so scientists lay out a pretty clear scientific case that, you know, uh, you know, most of this warming is caused by greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels. And the data are clear that reducing the burning of the fossil fuels quickly, you know, could help humans avoid some of the worst, worst climate effects. Then, you know, after that, the name of the game is uh, the, the response is all about adaptation. The authors of the report show that most of that adaptation now is incremental, these little short term fixes. And they may make a case that there needs to be bigger transformational changes like the ones Dr. Dr. Mearns talked about, those, those long-term system-wide fixes. And those will become increasingly necessary as the effects of climate change mount. One other point, that the U.S. chapter also has a little section that focuses uh, on, on, on research about misinformation and disinformation about climate change, both from political and special interests. Uh, and it notes that, uh, you know, uh, that misinformation has, has played a role in slowing down adaptation, particularly here in the United States. All right, Joe, thanks for this insight. Thank you. 
Joe Wirtz is the climate and environment editor at CPR News. You can read a breakdown of the new IPCC climate report and the key takeaways for Colorado and the region at CPR.org. When we come back, the power of the little black book. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. We're all broken in our own ways, and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And I remember them like whispering behind my back of being like, oh, don't say that to Lynn. You're going to give her an eating disorder. We're coming back on March 4th with some of the most powerful stories we've ever told. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. The pandemic was especially hard on Black-owned businesses. They suffered three times the decline seen by other ethnic and racial groups. At the same time, a publication that supports Black businesses in Denver has been on hold since the first shutdown. But now, it's back. The 2022 edition of The Little Black Book launched last week. Carla Ladd is the publisher. Welcome, Carla. Good morning, Nathan. How are you? Doing well, thanks. You are the founder of two publications highlighting the Black business community in Denver. The Little Black Book is an offshoot of your online directory called the Denver Black Pages. Tell us about the Denver Black Pages. Sure, thank you. Um, The Denver Black Pages was created back in 2020, no, 2002, actually. And Mm -hmm. it's an online resource for Denver's African-American community. It contains our community calendar, business directory, and we feature Black businesses on there. So um, yeah, that's in a nutshell what the Denver Black Pages is. So I'm kind of imagining it as a as a yellow pages for Black-owned businesses, right? Absolutely. That's the way you can look at it. Yeah. You started the Black Business Pages nearly 20 years ago. Why? Well, um, there were other printed publications out there, but um, it was really out of my own selfish need. Um, I have been here a couple of years, and I really didn't know how to find Black businesses, where to find them uh, for the services I needed, like hair and dental and that kind of thing. I like to support Black businesses for the services that I need. And so I didn't know where to find them. Um, And so I created it out of my own necessity. Um, There was, like I said, printed publications, but there was nothing online that would be up to date um, when I saw it. So Yeah, that's why I uh, created it almost 20 years ago. It'll be 20 years in September. Yeah. And there is a wide array of businesses on the website, of course, as well as in the Little Black Book. You have realtors, you have restaurants, you have financial planners, you have uh, salons, you have uh, links to local Black business leaders, right? Um, The percentage of businesses in Denver that are Black-owned is low compared to other American cities. Why do you think that is? Well, the population, Black population in uh, Colorado is low. We're about uh, just over 4% of the population in Colorado and just under 10% in the Denver metro area. So we're a small population to start with. And so um, we are going to have less or fewer small businesses than most ethnic groups here. And is that why, you know, possibly networking is more important and doing something like this and gathering everyone together in, in one place to say, hey, this is my business and I'm, I'm you know, marketing it to you? 
Absolutely. That's part of the things that we do with the Denver Black Pages is our quarterly networking events. Uh, we're going to start doing those more often um, now that COVID restrictions are lifting, but it's very important for us to get to know who the Black business community is, what they're doing. And so um, we do that in person with networking events. And then we also um, allow them to you know, speak during our networking events about what they do and how we can support them. I heard that you believe there's a lack of a geographical Black community in Denver, and that makes it harder for Black-owned businesses. I'm thinking Five Points, Park Hill, et cetera, that used to be very central to the Black community. Um, but those are kind of changing, right? How do you How do you deal with that? Well, that's correct. There used to be, you know, you could point someone to Five Points or Park Hill and say, here's where the predominantly Black uh, community is. And right now you can't do that. Uh, we're so dispersed uh, geographically throughout the city and the, the state that you can't point to a Black business. So this is why we created a virtual community, a virtual Black neighborhood or Black community so that you can point people to um, the Black businesses in the area, the Black culture, the music, the arts, uh, the food, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's why we created is really to create community. So you're seeing your products as, as building this community, right? Absolutely, yes. And um, I, I think we're doing a good job of that. Um, we're, all, we're trying to collaborate with all the Black businesses and Black organizations to be the resor a resource for all of them to have a platform where there's one place for everything in the Black, everything Black in the community. Yeah. Now, the Little Black Book, which is printed with actual paper and ink, uh, <laughs> is something relatively new for you. I mean, you may be the only publisher I know who is going from virtual to hard copy. Uh, what was the need right. for the Little Black Book? <laughs> well, you know, I was so resistant to doing a print version of, of uh, the Denver Black Pages. I really was because, you know, we, we were in the digital age and other yeah. printed publications were dying out, like, you know, the Rocky Mountain News died and Jet Magazine, you know, they're no longer here because we ushered in this digital age. And so for up until 2019, I didn't even print this book. But, you know, um, now that there's this digital fatigue uh, where people have been locked up and isolated from each other in every way during the pandemic, um, now, you know, people want to something that they can touch and feel. I, and I don't quite get it, but I do because of this digital fatigue. I'm tired of looking at a screen every day. I'm tired of looking at my phone every day. So when this came out, people were so receptive to having something they can put in their hands and look at real time, you know, full scale. Um, and so it's been really well, very well received, actually. I, I could see Very it sitting like you know in the in the seat next to you in your car. You could just you know open up and flip through it as opposed to pulling out your phone and and and, and talk, you know figuring out where you want to go. Right? Yeah, that's why we made it small so that you could keep it in your glove box. If so they have do you those find anymore, that, I think they do. do yeah. <laughs> do you find that tourists and visitors to Denver also want to find black-owned businesses and seek out something like this? Oh, absolutely. Um, visitors, especially. They're looking, Black visitors are looking for, you know, most most of them don't think they're 
that we have a rich Black community here, but we do. And that's why we designed the book to be attractive and to include as much as we could about Denver's Black history and culture so that visitors can see that, you know, and visit those places uh, that, that they can see that we have, um, Denver has, Denver Metro has a very rich Black culture here. So it's important for them, and then it's important for newcomers as well to find those services that I spoke about earlier. Yeah. Is it an exhaustive list, or or do you always want to add more if if there are? Um, We can can always add more, but um, we try to keep it limited so that it's a smaller book. But we still have much room uh, left to scale this book um, so that it's still small, but... um, what we don't want to do is make it a, a big book of display ads. We want to make sure that we continue to add content that's relevant to the community and helpful. So, uh, yes, we still I have see. room to scale. Got it. So not a giant yellow phone book as one would think. That would be you know, <laughs> defeating the purpose. <laughs> exactly, Nathan. Exactly. That is exactly what I do not want is a big yellow page. You are now a black business owner yourself. You eventually left your corporate job to do this full time. Uh, what was the turning point that turned you into an entrepreneur? Well, to be honest, I've always had an entrepreneurial heart. My grandmother was an entrepreneur. My dad was an entrepreneur. And my grandmother's grandmother was an entrepreneur. So it's in my blood. I would say I was cursed with it. So I had no choice, really to be an entrepreneur because, you know, most people, if they knew about, you know, how difficult it can be to be an entrepreneur, they wouldn't do it. You have to have a special heart for this. And um, I do. So I've always had an entrepreneurial heart, even when I was in corporate. Carla, I really appreciate appreciate you for uh, joining us today. Thanks. Thank you, Nathan. Have a good day. You too. Carla Ladd is the publisher of the Denver Black Pages. The 2022 edition of the Little Black Book launched last week. Find it at denverblackpages.com. When we come back, how problems in the past may shape the future of transportation along the Front Range. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. When a 73-year-old woman was appointed health advisor on Colorado's post-war planning committee in 1944, nobody thought the Central City native would rock the political boat. But this was medical and scientific pioneer Dr. Florence Rena Sabin, the first woman to graduate from Johns Hopkins Medical School, the first to become full medical professor there, and the first woman elected to the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Sabin could have sat quietly on that committee, Instead, she traveled across Colorado and opened many eyes to the sad state of the state's public health. With energy, brilliance, and a steely spirit, she changed the face of public health and medicine in Colorado and ultimately improved and extended lives across the state. And today, Florence Rena Sabin's statue is one of Colorado's two contributions to the National Statuary Hall in the nation's capital. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble & Company. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Ghost Train is the new podcast from CPR News that explores the past, present, and future of transportation in Metro Denver and parts of the Front Range. There's an evolving vision to create densely packed, walkable places. But to make this real, you need more than just sidewalks, condos, and apartments. 
You also need the buses and trains to actually show up. Today, the story of what happened when RTD didn't keep a very big promise. Here's CPR transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner, creator and host of Ghost Train. Uh, one or two bedroom. Uh, uh, it's, uh, well, it's hard to describe. I'll show you. Yeah, sure. And should we take our shoes off? Blake Stone thought they were doing the right thing when they bought this small condo in East Boulder back in 2010. Right. It's a very small space. Yeah, what's the square footage? Uh, 700 square feet. Okay. Yeah. It's nothing fancy, but the location was supposed to be killer. From upstairs, we can see the Flatirons, the iconic sandstone rock formations that tower over Boulder. And the condo is just a few minutes' walk from the RTD train station, which you should know by now is quite empty. But back in 2010, Blake still thought the train to Denver was coming. And that was a big draw for them and their partner at the time. We had just been traveling around Europe, and we had been riding a lot of trains and trams, you know, all kinds of mass transit around the Netherlands and Denmark and Germany. And... We came back to Boulder to, you know, find jobs and find a place to live. We saw that this area reminded us so much of the Netherlands, how, like, there's shops and there's apartments and residences, and then we're going to have this rail system coming by, and everything would be really close. And we thought, oh, we could, we could live here and be close to nature and the mountains as we want to be and ride the train to Denver or to Longmont to work. This train line, of course, was never built. So Blake mostly stays here in this quiet corner of Boulder. We are very much in the center of Boulder in what I call condo hell. It's sort of a miniature little urban area centered around a transit system that doesn't exist. Even the buses don't come here very often anymore. RTD cut service to the bone during the pandemic. So Blake has to drive to get to work, which they hate because it's stressful and dangerous and pollutes the skies over the mountains that drew them here nearly 20 years ago. What they really want right now is more bus service here in this place built for it and everywhere across the region. And yeah, that train sure would be great, too. But Blake's faith in RTD is very shaky right now. Yes, because of the train failure, but also because they see RTD cutting service at the same time its executives are collecting big salaries of up to $330,000 a year. That doesn't make sense to me. I wonder if the people who have been running RTD actually ride the bus system and actually, you know, use mass transit. How would you describe your trust in RTD right now? Uh, about as much trust as I have in the Amazon that owns Whole Foods over there. <laughs> I, I think that they've confused themselves with a corporation instead of a publicly owned entity. There are a lot of people like Blake up in this corner of the Denver metro. People who just don't trust RTD anymore. And that could turn out to have big consequences. Because public trust is a big part of what gives governments power. 
It's why people vote. It's why people pay taxes to support new ideas. And Colorado's leaders have their own big ambitious ideas to take on issues like growth, climate change, and yeah, transportation. And these leaders are worried that voters in places like Boulder won't support those plans. Because for the last 17 years, they've been burned. From member-supported Colorado Public Radio, this is Ghost Train. The story of how one polluted, traffic-choked city went all in on trains. And what happened when that plan jumped the track. I'm Nathaniel Miner. In this episode, our fourth and final episode, the story of the ghost train itself. How it's gone from what seemed like a great idea nearly 20 years ago to now, a failure that's turned it into a liability for RTD. One that prevents it from pursuing newer and more realistic transit projects. This fiasco also offers a lesson for transit agencies in other cities. Only promise what you can actually deliver. We'll also answer some pressing questions, like why was the train to Boulder and Longmont never built? Should voters hold on to the hope that one day it will be? And there's a bigger question we'll get at too. If Coloradans need more public transportation in their future, can they trust RTD to deliver it? A few weeks ago, my producer Rebecca Romberg and I were out exploring the back roads of Boulder, about 25 miles northwest of downtown Denver. I wanted to show her why RTD hasn't been able to build this train yet. We're maybe three or four miles outside of Boulder, and it's just like this stunningly beautiful place. Like you can see the mountains here. We're super close to them. And this is exactly the view that, if you remember back to episode one, that Spence Havlick, that guy on the train, this is what he saw that day. Snow-capped peaks, you know, really pretty, tall, wild grass kind of just whistling in the wind. It's nice, and you can see why people want this train. You can really see why people want this train. There's a certain glamour to it, it seems like. Well, yeah. We're standing next to a single rail track. In one direction, Denver. In the other, Boulder and Longmont. It's owned by Burlington Northern Santa Fe. All along, RTD's plan was to lease this track from BNSF. And before the 2004 vote, they thought that would be pretty cheap. But by the time RTD actually asked for the official price from BNSF in 2011, it was much, much higher. Because BNSF uses their track a lot. And that means RTD needs to build an entire second track. So yeah, here we have a freight train coming up from Denver. It's big. It's really long. I can't see the end of it. Wow. This is not a ghost train. This is a real train. Tell me about what we're seeing. This is a big, long freight train. I see pallets of lumber on it. I think those are coal cars. There's an oil tanker. And this is why 
RTD still hasn't built its train to Boulder and Longmont because there isn't enough space for it because of this, because it's being used for something else. BNSF's price hike and other factors like inflation and the cost of materials tripled the total cost for this project. The latest estimate is more than a billion and a half dollars. And that ultimately is the reason why RTD never built this line to Boulder, because it underestimated how much it would cost. That simple fact has turned this unfinished line into a fiasco for RTD, perhaps the biggest blunder in its history. I wanted to know why RTD didn't see this coming. So I tracked down the guy whose job it was to figure out what this project would cost. Knowing now what this turned into, I mean, do you still think you did a good job of, of estimating before the fact? At the time we did the estimates, yes. Yeah. I, I really believe that. John Chauncey was a senior level engineer at RTD for more than a decade. He's retired now and sports a bushy mustache. And he says he looked at what RTD had spent on other rail projects to come up with the Boulder train estimate. In short, he says he did the best he could. At the time we did the estimates, based on all of our knowledge that we had at that time, I think we did. John's explanation may not cut it for you, especially if you've been waiting 17 years for this train. But think about this for a second from RTD's perspective. A more thorough plan before the vote probably would have been more accurate. But doing really detailed studies, that takes lots of money and lots of time, years even. RTD had momentum before the Fast Tracks vote, and they wanted to use it. They wanted to seize their moment. And that moment ended up not lasting very long. Just three years after the vote, the Great Recession hit. At that point, who knows if it would have passed. Not long after the price of the Boulder train jumped, RTD's board made an important decision. They decided not to ask voters for another tax increase because they didn't think it would pass. That meant this train wasn't going to be built for decades. Around this time, as the train was slipping away, elected officials around Boulder grew more and more irate with RTD, especially because it was still building other trains elsewhere. And that is the hardest part for me to swallow, is that we are guaranteed something that we have paid 70 plus million dollars into to build everyone else's down south. And I had several board of directors come up to me and say, oh, we're gonna make sure that we get it completely built. Please, please, you got yours. The rest of us are left holding the bag. Since 2005, RTD has collected $270 million from Boulder County taxpayers for fast tracks and they still don't have their train. There's another important wrinkle to this story. 
Boulder didn't get what it was promised, but it was also promised a lot more than other communities. Under the Fast Tracks plan, RTD promised most communities only one thing, trains. Boulder was special. They were promised two things, an express bus line on the highway between Denver and Boulder, and the train line that would run parallel for much of that, before extending farther north to Longmont. Why did they want and were promised both? How did that happen? (laughs) It doesn't make sense to me. I just think that the communities up there wanted to get as much as they possibly could. And they didn't get any pushback. And basically, they're adamant, saying, I have to have this, and I have to have that. John Shanti thinks RTD and its then-leader Cal Marcella promised bus and rail to convince more Boulder County residents to vote yes for fast tracks. Would have been on Cal? Was he the person who would have said, well, maybe not so fast, Boulder? I think Cal was part of it. I really do. I think Cal let him get away with that. I think RTD staff, in a way, let him get away with that. If RTD and Cal had forced Boulder to choose either bus or rail, this entire saga could have turned out much, much differently. But they didn't. So now, the people of Boulder feel cheated. And that appears to weigh on John's mind. I feel sad that I didn't get it all done. Do I have a personal responsibility as to the fact that it wasn't all done when I said it was going to be? I did my best. I think everybody at RTD did their best. I don't think it was malfeasance on anybody's part. Did I give them as much as I could give them? Yes, I did. I gave them a service that they're still not happy with. Boulder still got their express bus line. And while some of its riders perhaps would rather be on a train, it's turned out to be very popular. Before the pandemic, it was one of the highest performing lines in the entire RTD system. All along, RTD projected that the bus would actually carry more people because it could go more places and run more often. Was it a mistake to promise both bus and rail up to Boulder? If I could go all the way back there, I'd say it was a mistake because they were competing systems. They provided the same service, but they competed against one another. It probably shouldn't have happened that way, but it did. Now, a handful of RTD board members, like Chantel Lewis from the last episode, they argue this train should not be built. Ever. Because Boulder already got a very popular bus line. Besides, they say, this part of the metro area is very wealthy. And that right now, when RTD's resources are very limited, it should focus them in low-income areas, where people really, truly need a ride. But that argument is not going over well in Boulder County. RTD cut a lot of bus service here during the pandemic. Riders want it back. Since the Boulder train's cost exploded about a decade ago, 
RTD put the project into hibernation. Its leaders don't bring it up all that often. But people, including some very powerful people, have not forgotten about it. And they won't let RTD forget about it either. That became clear early last year. It all started when I asked RTD's new CEO a question. This next question from Nathaniel. Is Northwest Rail worth pursuing, even as a long-term goal, given other transportation needs in the Northwest region? Deborah, are you... Do you want to take that up? Well, sure. I'm more than happy to. And recognize- Deborah Johnson is a transit veteran. She's worked in big cities like Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. But a year ago, she was very new to Denver. So the Boulder train drama was new to her, too. And she gave a surprisingly direct answer. While we're fixated on rail because it's sexy and everybody wants to ride the iron horse, We have to keep in mind what might be more viable as we look at communities holistically. She was saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't build this train. Maybe we should figure out something else that's cheaper and could be delivered much quicker, like better bus service. From the perspective of a nuts and bolts transit planner, her answer made a lot of sense. There are definitely more cost-effective transit projects than a billion and a half dollar train. But from a political perspective, her answer was like throwing a bomb. Boulder County lit up with anger. And then the governor, who also happens to be a resident of Boulder, he stepped in. And he did something very odd for a governor. He went to an RTD board meeting. The Northwest Rail is a vital link for the entire system. Uh, And of course, we have to finish it before we can reap its benefits. And it's really essential, of course, that we uphold the will of the voters, find a way to move forward before looking at at other projects, which uh, you as individual directors may feel you want more. But this is about fulfilling the existing promises made to taxpayers in, in 2004. The governor, Jared Polis, one of the most powerful politicians in the state, he was telling RTD, this overextended, dead broke transit agency, that they had to prioritize this train over everything else. New ideas, like the bus-only lanes in Denver we talked about last episode, he was saying those had to wait. He was rejecting questions about whether the train should ever be built. He was asking, when will it be built? And how can we speed that up? We understand if it's not 2025, is it 2026, is it 2027? Uh, what, what is it that, uh, that needs to be done to uh, be able to complete the Fast Tracks initiative. Polis told RTD's leaders that their failure to create the Boulder Line was making Coloradans mistrust their governments. And that was threatening his big plans that needed trust and support and possibly tax dollars for things like education and big transportation projects. Just a few months later, Pola signed a big new transportation bill. It'll raise billions of dollars for roads and electric vehicles. But there's no guaranteed money for RTD. Polis declined my interview request. But last spring, my colleague Ryan Warner asked the governor about the bill. And it sure sounded like Polis was punishing RTD. There isn't any money for Colorado's largest transit agency, RTD. 
Well, the, the yeah, RTD is not is not something that is run by the state, and and right now I and many others at the state level are not always happy with everything RTD does. So we're certainly not about to give them money. The governor of Colorado was telling RTD that they had to repair trust with voters by building this train to Boulder and Longmont, but he wasn't going to give them any new money to pay for it. So where does this leave RTD? They have more than $100 million saved up for the Boulder train now. And they're using a little bit of that for new cost estimates. So this thing is still slowly inching forward. But the reality is, there's simply not enough money for them to build it on their own. But maybe they won't have to. President Biden's infrastructure bill means the federal government has billions of dollars to spend on new passenger rail lines all over the country. The feds want to put one in Colorado, from Pueblo in the south, up through Colorado Springs, Denver, and Fort Collins in the north. More than 150 miles. State officials are on board, too. It would probably roll through Boulder and nearby cities. So I went to one more empty train station, where hopes are running high. We're going to actually everything on the east side of the tracks is new and came in um, because of the station that was planned for the area. Ashley Stoldman is the mayor of Louisville, a slightly more affordable suburb just east of Boulder, where you can get a home for the low, low price of $850,000 instead of a cool million. I had to hustle to keep up with her as she showed me part of her city. So it was all rezoned. Um, And it's all new since Fast Tracks has passed, and it's part of an urban renewal area. On this side, there are a few... She took me to what should be the Louisville train station, right in the heart of downtown. Some of RTD's most successful rail stations are in places like this, small historic downtowns in other suburbs. The Boulder train would stop in two more, Longmont, way at the end of the line, and here, in Louisville. New three-story buildings face the track. There's a pedestrian plaza with attractive red bricks. Ashley says Louisville tried to build in a climate and transit-friendly way. But of course, the train never came. That was supposed to be transit-oriented development. Um, supposed to be the site of all of these you know, commuters that wouldn't have to have cars, wouldn't have to drive. And then it's not served by train. And now bus service has been cut from it. So it's really just an example of a development that creates more congestion. So she's frustrated. But Ashley has hope, too. Because while RTD doesn't have the money it needs to get access to the freight rail track and to build all the infrastructure it needs, the federal government does especially with the new infrastructure bill. RTD is trying to link up with this bigger project so they can share costs and ultimately to make their own project cheaper. The idea is that Amtrak would run express service that would only stop in bigger cities like Denver, Boulder, and Longmont. RTD would run the local service that would stop at every station along the way. And Amtrak is really excited. And so when you start talking to them and you hear their excitement, you start to realize, okay, we need to just set aside all of the nonsense and figure out what is the path forward. 
There are a lot of steps on that path, including a potential vote for a tax increase. State rail officials say they've learned from RTD's mistakes and will try to avoid making them again. Because especially in this area, there's a lot of mistrust among voters when it comes to trains and taxes. I mean, we're at this point now where trust in RTD seems very low. I agree. Um, And they never went back to the voters, even after it became clear that, hey, we're pushing this out 30 years, right? Like, at that moment, I wonder, why didn't they go to the voters and say, like, we need to resolve this? Because right Right. now there's just this sort of festering wound. I think that I think the festering wound is a huge problem. And so I do look for ways to help rebuild confidence in our transit agency. And that's why the last two years I've been working really hard with the other mayors in the area to try to get Amtrak in the picture. Ashley Stolzman is very focused on the same question the governor is. When can the Boulder train be built? But after talking with her for a bit, I realized there's another, deeper question she's trying to answer. And that question is related, but different. It's more like, how do we as a region move forward? Because even if the Boulder train opened tomorrow, it would solve some of Louisville's transportation problems, but not all of them. Or Boulder's or Longmont's, or Denver's. Ashley says that, yes, there are some less affluent areas where more people really need to ride RTD. But she doesn't think the solution is to put service there and to cut it everywhere else. She says every community needs more transit service, and that RTD seems incapable of meeting that need. So she says it's time for every community and state leader to get together to figure out how to fix this problem. And so I think we need to look at the fiscal reality, I guess, and say to ourselves, how should we pay for transit? Like, What is an equitable way to pay for transit? And how can we put in place a system that grows as the region grows? I think those are really important questions to answer. She sees transit as key to fixing all the problems we've been talking about through this whole series. Traffic, inequities, and especially the climate. And then, just a few months after our interview, a wildfire in December burned more than a thousand homes in Louisville and nearby towns. At least one person died. So I checked in with Ashley again, and here's what she told me. If a fire like that can happen here, it can happen anywhere. Every community needs to reduce climate emissions, and transit is a big part of that. I don't think I can tie up this story neatly just yet, because its real ending hasn't happened. But at this moment, here's what we can say. Apart from all the concrete and tracks it laid, RTD's big, ambitious Fast Tracks plan did two important and intangible things. First, it raised people's expectations. Taxpayers saw a list of projects, and they still clearly remember them. And second, it helped people to dream big, to imagine something different. And I think those two things are powerful, They show that people do want better transit. For people in Boulder and Louisville who've seen their dreams collapse, they want a fulfillment of the promises of 2004. For people like Sam Chesser, the commuter from Denver we heard from earlier in the series, they want something new 
like better, faster buses in the city. If Denver is really going to get closer to its ideal of being a less polluted, more equitable place, a true world-class city, it's probably going to have to do both. The question is how to pay for it. Maybe the federal and state governments will decide to put more money into transit. Maybe Amtrak will come through and save the day. But until those things happen, RTD will be mostly left to fend for itself, with a tall to-do list and an angry constituency. People like Governor Polis and Mayor Stolzman say if RTD really can't build the Boulder train, it needs to go back to voters and to ask their permission to let it go. And I get that. That might actually rebuild some trust. Because for the last 10 years, RTD has just quietly delayed it again and again, all the way out to 2050. So long that both the Boulder train and RTD itself have become punchlines. That is a shame. Because the problems we're facing right now that RTD could help us fix, they are not funny. As the fire in Louisville showed, they're deadly serious. And no, the Boulder train alone would not have prevented that fire from happening. But on the whole, experts say denser, more walkable cities with dependable transit are crucial to bringing down the carbon emissions that are warming our climate. But I think people will only want to live that way if they can trust that they'll get the transit service they need. I think about Blake Stone in that little Boulder condo who wants to live a sustainable life and did everything they could to do that. But so far, RTD has left them hanging. Yeah, they told me, they'd vote for another tax increase for public transit. But not because RTD earned it. Because they think it's the right thing to do. Ghost Train, created and hosted by CPR transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner. Follow this and the first three episodes at NPR One, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts, and online at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Nathan Heffel with thanks to Nell London and Joe Wirtz. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.